Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 15 of the EDD podcast hosted by the South County SELPA in San Diego, California. I'm Marcus Jackson, executive consultant and member of the Equity, Disproportionality, and Design Project team. As always, I'd like to introduce my two colleagues, Ryan Estrada. Ryan, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. Thank you, Marcus. And Aaron Mahoney. How's it going, Aaron? Hi, Marcus. Doing well. Great, great. Today, we'll be talking to a familiar voice and a returning guest, a friend, Dr. Samuel Ortiz. Dr. Ortiz is currently a professor of psychology, College of Liberal Arts and Sciences at St. John's University. He has been an, an author, researcher, assessment developer, and nationally known speaker and advocate for non-discriminatory assessment and pre-referral strategies to support English learners, a true voice of equity for students in schools. During this podcast, we will be asking Dr. Ortiz to share some information about his background, but his extensive professional bio will be included in the show notes. And with that being said, I want to say welcome back, Dr. Ortiz. Good to have you here. Thank you very much, Marcus. It's a pleasure to be back. So I'm excited. Thank you. Great. Now, since our last podcast with you, which was July 2021, are there any new projects that you have been involved in that you'd like to share? Uh, wow. <laughs> I, I'm not sure if, see if there's anything really new other than I'm trying to continue to to wrapping up and completing some of the ones I was already probably mentioning. And I can't believe it's, it's been a year. Oh, my God. I feel like I talked to you just like a couple of months ago. So the time just seems to fly. But, um, uh, you know, probably the most relevant thing that actually is going on, you guys might be familiar with the fact that the National Association of School Psychologists are revising the um, NAS Best Practices Volume 7 now. Uh, and I've been doing the non-discriminatory assessment chapter since volume four, which came out in 2001 or 2002. So it's been about 20 years and I did four, five, six, and now seven. And uh, my final draft has been sent off and uh, looks like we'll go to the copy edit stage now soon. So um, I think that that's really something new and it's a, it's not a dramatic shift from what was before, but it is, I think, a real improvement and enhancement of uh, procedures and ideas for conducting non-discriminatory assessment on a much broader basis, not even just dealing with uh, English learners per se or with particular uh, ethnic or racial populations, but really expanding the concept of non-discriminatory assessment to everybody. That sounds good. Um, was there any, um, what, what spurred that? Like, why, why? Why now? Why did you guys start to start to do that right now? Well, they, we, NASP does this about every, I don't know, uh, you know, six or seven years or so. So it's a cycle in terms of the revision of best practices. Um, and they actually had approached me probably more than a year, a year and a half ago. And then I did the chapter and then they sent it back after review. And I was supposed to do revisions and I kind of forgot about them. So I apologize to Patty Harrison in particular. I'm sorry, Patty, but she reminded me. And then I like got back into it and uh, finally hammered it all out and got it back to her in time. So it, it's on production schedule, probably not going to be out until 2024 uh, or that I'd say late 2023, early 2024 probably before we see it actually in print, but it's, it's pretty much on the schedule that they normally run. Sounds good. So it looks like some good content coming. So look for that 
with the National Association for School Psychologists. Thank you. Good to hear that. Now, um, I remember our last conversation. You have a very interesting story as how you became a educator and professor. So <laughs> for those who didn't hear it, and we had a lot of people who did hear it, can you kind of sum that up again and kind of give them that story? <laughs> uh, yeah. So like we were talking, we know we'll need three more hours to finish that. Um, the, this the summary is, you know, the, the the summary is that I was I, I was completely naive as a child. OK, I didn't know what the heck I was doing. I mean, I could do schoolwork. I could do it well. I could get good grades. I mean, I was somewhat good at math and I was crappy at, you know, anything else like writing and reading. So, you know, that's why I went to school to be an architect. And it was like, hey, I have to draw and I have to read books with pictures. What could be more natural for me as an English learner? So, you know, that was that's kind of how I ended up there. And then the switch to architecture, I think I covered that one last time, was, again, just total accident. I'm just trying to learn about about the built environment and its impact on the people that will use the buildings and stuff. So I just wanted to be an informed architect. Uh, but that led me to getting a degree in psychology, same time I was getting in architecture. And then somebody just kind of suggested I should go to graduate school in psychology. And I'm like, but why? I don't know. But since you asked, I'll go ahead and apply out of respect because I'm so naive, I told you. And then I get accepted. Now I got to go into clinical psychology. I never wanted to be a clinical psychologist. But anyway, I did it. I struggled. I knew that I would. I somehow managed to get through it. There was a period in there that was a big change where I, I sometimes, when we have the time, because I know we don't have it now, but when we have the time, I, I talk about my own personal shift from Bix language to Calp because it happened during graduate school after I was, well, I took a leave of absence because they were going to throw me out. I was about to flunk out. That's how badly I was doing because I couldn't write. I told you I couldn't write. I don't know why they accepted me when I told them I couldn't write. So I had to learn to write and, and that I did, but it was painful, long, uh, again, good luck, good fortune on my end. Thank you, IBM and the PC computer, WordStar and the dot matrix printer. Otherwise, I'm not here today. And then I, I finished up, you know, my PhD in clinical psychology, and I, I just was looking for a job. I didn't know what the heck I was doing. And I, I think I mentioned last time that I did literally, here I am, naive again. I just looked for positions in the classified ads, you know. Okay, like just looking through it, one ads, classified, looking for, you know, anybody, what can I do with a PhD in clinical psychology? Apparently not much. And I saw jobs for school psychologists, though, and I thought, why can't I do that? So I just literally applied for a job as a school psychologist with Carlsbad Unified School District. Thank you very much, Carlsbad. They wanted me, loved me. I don't know why. Maybe because I spoke Spanish, and that was the only reason, because I was as ignorant as you could be. And anyway... I couldn't get hired because I didn't have a credential. And so it was like, oh, how hard could that be? And then, you know, I learned from the state, you got to be recommended by a program. So then I learned from the programs, no, you got to take classes. And I learned by taking classes, no, you got to pay for all that. I'm like, no, no, I'm not doing any of that. I, I, I don't know what I was going to do because I had a family and children to support. So I'm thinking uh, I'm going into something else, anything else. Thank you, please. Until um, San Diego State called me back. Valerie Cook Morales Literally called me up and said, come on down. We're having interviews tomorrow. We'll talk to you afterwards. 
I showed up, I interviewed, they're like, oh, we'd like you to come in the program. I'm like, no, I need a job. I need money. This isn't going to work. And she's like, no, come on. We'll put you on grants. We'll get you trained. You'll get GI Bill, the stipends, your tuition's covered. What could be better, right? And I was like, okay, yeah, I'll do it. That's literally how I got into school psychology. I had no planning, no idea what the field was about. I was as clueless as you could possibly be. But it probably was absolutely the best thing that ever happened to me because from that point on, everything I read about, everything I learned in my coursework, every book that I picked up, an article that I read was, was really the story of my life. I was an English learner and I suddenly realized, oh my God, I'm bilingual. I didn't know that. I mean, I knew it, but I didn't know it. And I was an English learner and I was learning about all these things and I'm thinking, oh my God, this is amazing. <laughs> So it, it resonated with me because finally my personal life and my professional life came together in a way that they had never before ever come together. Nothing in my education or my training had ever had anything to do with my cultural background, experiences, language, or life. They were completely separate. And when they kind of joined up, I think that's where really it just kind of lit a fire in me because suddenly... I, I understood things not just because I was learning about them or reading about them, but also because I lived them. And, and that was something that was unique. And, and I, I knew, I think, I pretty much knew, wow, I think I found the right place to be because I really like this. But I, I eventually, I, I, got, I got frustrated because I knew what I was being asked to do as a school psychologist. So I did become a school psychologist up in Encinitas, thank you very much, Encinitas Unified School District. And um, I, I, I loved it, but I was frustrated in that I knew that I was making decisions that it, I just couldn't feel strong about defending. It was, it was difficult. I was using tools that really didn't, I think, measure what they were supposed to be measuring, or they were being confounded by children's lack of English proficiency or their lack of a cultural learning opportunities. I'm like, why should that kid know that? A kid didn't grow up any place that has trains. How does he know what you're supposed to do when the train tracks are broken? He didn't know. You know, so it's like, it just was frustrating. And I tried to find out how to do it right. And that's where I just continued looking, looking, looking. And in my studies, in my coursework, during my internship, during my practice school psych, I never found anything that said, here is how it's done. Here's the right way. And I thought, this is crazy. And if nobody knows how to do it right, then that's a big problem. And I decided, strangely enough, I was actually doing adjunct teaching for San Diego State at the time. I'm thinking they got a tenure track position open up. Why can't I go and learn how to do this right and figure it all out myself? I mean, I've got the background. I just, I had the background. I mean, personally and professionally. So it was like, yeah, I want to go do this. And boy, I'll tell you, when I got into academia, I kind of really liked it. Um, it was a lot of work in the beginning, but it, it gave me the one thing that I always wanted when I was a kid in terms of a job. Because I remember being 10, 11 years old and thinking to myself what I wanted to be when I grew up. And it never occurred to me I wanted to be a professor. But it did occur to me that I wanted a job where I didn't have to get up early in the morning. And that was all I really wanted. And I got it. So I, I couldn't be more pleased. I have slept more since that time than ever before. Thank you very much. So that's how I kind of how I got here. You get the basic idea. Yeah, that's a great story. And really, sometimes uh, it reminds uh, people that 
sometimes you're led to circumstances that you have no idea, but it, you end up landing in the right place you're supposed to be. And thankful for all of us, it worked out well for you. So thank you for sharing that. Um, you know, Dr. Ortiz, when you presented here last year, um, it was in July of 2021, and at least for our year-round schools, they were really going back in person, some of our schools, or some of our districts, for the first time. And so um, there was a lot of time outside of school. There was a new learning because it was online. Um, but that familiarity of being at that school site, connecting with people, having that, that, that type of connection, um, there was a lot of talk about the loss of uh, learning and also for the social emotional components for students, there was that loss of those connections. How do you think that impacted students, um, particularly with, with language, language uh, uh, needs? How did that impact them? How do you feel? It, it, it probably affected them far more than people realize or understand. Mm. Because, you know, when you focus on, on instructional loss, people think of the content, the academic content. What didn't they learn? The ABCs, how to count 20, multiplication, addition, and so on. But what they don't think about is think of the language loss that also occurred. When, when I was going to school, for example, and I mentioned last time that I started school at the age of five, I knew no English, so I was learning English in school. I'm an English learner myself. Now, when I went home, I didn't get English because my parents didn't speak English or very limited, and it was worse than my own English. So my sister might speak to me a little bit, all right? And that meant when I'm not in school, my English opportunity was limited. Now, I still had a chance, even during that time, to sometimes get outside and play or play with my friends and so on. So I had a little bit of activity with them. But if you consider kids, you know, today who had to deal with the pandemic going home and then having to uh, socially isolate, then they don't have the opportunity to continue to play with their friends to learn more English, at least to get conversational, at least to practice that. They go home and it's going to be the language of the home. And if that's not primarily English, then they're not getting it in school other than when they're online. And we know that that's going to be limited primarily to them listening to the instruction or doing the exercise that they need to do. But they're losing a whole lot of that social language and even some of the academic language that comes with the discussions within the school setting on a daily basis. And so without that, I think their language suffered in terms of English. Not that this is what's responsible at all for why there are educational disparities uh, among English language learners compared to monolingual English speakers. It's not just that. But the point is, it probably put them even further behind than they would ordinarily be. So it was an additional impact that would not have affected your monolingual English speakers. Your monolingual English speakers go home, their parents are speaking English to them, their, uh, you know, friends, if they're playing with them are, their, their siblings are, the instructions in English, they're not really losing out of the language exposure in English. But the English learners are losing out. And I think that probably has a very significant impact on them, which needs to be considered when they return now. And you're looking at, okay, what can they do at the moment? Well, if you don't take into account how much the pandemic probably affected that language development, they're probably going to look a lot worse now than they even did before. And that's bad. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's powerful. Um, how do we regain or can we regain? I, I, I don't, I don't think it's possible to recoup lost time. 
primarily because, again, where do you fit it in? Mm-hmm. You know, you, you have instruction during the school day is already set and everybody knows what's going to happen then. So either you keep the kid after school and you throw in some more hours there, which wouldn't hurt, except that how much are you going to do and how much of it is going to make how much of a difference? So, you know, remember the monolingual kid goes home and all those hours that he's not in school or she's not in school is basically in English anyway. So they don't lose any time whatsoever. But an English learner loses some fraction of that time out of school that is not in English because it can't be. All right. And they they just, you know, unless they spend 24-7 in an English immersed environment, how can you maintain even the same amount of language development as your monolingual? You can't. It's just not physically possible. So it, it, you know, we, we can try. It would be wonderful to keep them in school longer, to give them more opportunity and exposure to English, but it's sort of a continuum, right? I mean, how much is enough? How much is going to help? And realistically, even if we were to give them 24-7 English, then the amount of English that they hadn't learned when they started school is the amount of the gap that would always exist from that point forward. You know, I I often say that um, you can solve all the problems with multilingual learners, okay, very easily by simply having children who are born to non-native or monolingual English-speaking parents being adopted by monolingual English-speaking parents, right? If you do that, then you don't have any problems because you don't have any multilingual learners anymore. You have monolingual English speakers, So that's not going to happen. And that's really facetious. I hope my sarcasm came through with that, because I know that sometimes it doesn't. Even in person, it does not. And I don't know why. Um, I often think I just like to think personally, it's because I'm so authoritative sounding. And, that you know, no matter what I say, you guys are going to believe me anyway. So I say something outrageous. They're like, oh, my God. Wow. And it's like, no, no, that was complete sarcasm. So you just can't make that time up. Not, not in, in a meaningful or appreciable way. You know, the, the reality is, and, and I don't know if I talked about this before, but when I do talk about pre-referral issues, I, I show how important even the first, like, three years of language development are and how profoundly they can affect development from that point. Now, think about a five-year difference and then think about an even longer difference for a kid who comes in in second grade or third grade. And think about the impossibility of a 16-year-old kid coming to high school, never having learned English, and suddenly, within the next two years, they're going to acquire somehow 18 years worth of English language development? It's just not going to happen. And so we, 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 we think it should. We think that as long as you can speak the language, then that's all you need. We, we don't understand it in terms of development, and it creates a grave disservice to children, particularly children that are culturally and linguistically diverse. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, you know, your story of, uh, when you talk about inequities of English learners, and just it just resonates with other people, particularly how when you were young and you were, you know, uh, misidentified, you know, how do you feel knowing that the work you've done over the years has really made a, dis- a difference and given practitioners uh, the tools now to better assess for either pre-referral and also for non-discriminatory assessments. How do you feel knowing that you actually, you put your money where your mouth is and now you're making a difference? How does that feel? 
you know, I have to say, Marcus, it's actually very strange because I I am unable to gauge my own impact. I, I don't feel it. I, I will be honest. There are days when I think, like, what the heck am I doing? Nobody cares. Nobody gives a crap. I might as well just go off and retire and do something else. I honestly feel it. I, I, I mean, I hear people, people come up to me all the time. So I can't deny that saying, Oh, you know, I know your work and we follow what you're doing and we do this and thank you for this. And I, I get that. I, I guess it's just that when I look at the larger picture and I see the disproportionality is still there, I see the the poor practice the uh, continued uh misidentification you know the the things that people continue to do and you know what they write about and what they discuss and and the way they think things need to be done i i often think you know honestly marcus i i haven't done a darn thing so i i sorry i didn't want to you know is any four-letter words in the podcast? I don't know if it's R-rated or not. It's that New Yorker comes out of me sometimes, so you have to forgive me if I slip up a little here and there. I mean, I, I have to say, sometime before the uh, grant is over, it, it would be uh, it would be funny if we could have at least one episode where we have to do an explicit language warning. <laughs> just just putting that out there. I don't think we've had to do one just yet. <laughs> yeah, you keep asking me these questions. You're going to have to do a lot of beeping right. coming up. I there think. you go. <laughs> So I don't, I don't know, Marcus, you know, I don't know how that feels. And to be honest with you, even when I think about the things that I have done, I feel like I'm just getting started. I feel like I've barely scratched the surface of what I can do. I mean, I feel like there's so much more I would want to do and still need to do. I kind of feel, you know, we, it's just the beginning. So I I don't put much stock in it. I'm, I'm, I'm happy. I am glad. And, I'm I'm proud that people are doing, you know, certain things and that I've influenced them. But I, I kind of feel it's it's almost tiny and negligible. I, I don't personally feel it. You know, that, that reminds me of two things about you that I really like. One is your humbleness. And two, as and we talk about a lot here at ED&D, that the pursuit of equ- equity is you pursue equity. There's never an ending st- ending point. And so it's continuous. Things always change. Students move from this school to that school. Your data consistently changes. But for people who think that there's an ending point, you're done. Like you said, all the work you've done and you, you still say, I'm just beginning. That's powerful. And that's that, that that's going that long run in terms of equity. It is pursued. We're, con- we're consistently trying to, to work towards that. So as a professor, uh, Dr. Ortiz, what do you want as your main takeaways for those students once they leave you? What do they need as when they walk out there into the field? Uh, I, I I think it is a recognition that what they're doing is meaningful, that it's important, that it has a huge impact, not just on on an individual, but on groups of children as well, that it's going to be more than just one. And that if, if, if a student of mine leaves my instruction in my program without having a strong sense of advocacy, 
then I probably haven't done a really good job. I, I used to liken it to going over to the dark side. And I, I would say to people, you know, like, look, we're training you this way. You probably remember, Marcus. I know I must have said this to your group as well. We're going to train you how to do things as well as you could probably do them. We're going to train you how to be fair and equitable and how to do things in a non-discriminatory way. We're going to help you be a, a child advocate and be absolutely the best multicultural school psychologist that you could possibly be. And, and then I would say, and after about three years of being out there working on your own, some of you aren't going to be doing anything that we have taught you. Some of you are going to go to the dark side and you're going to do it the way the district wants you. It's going to be policy driven. That is really not based on on what's best for children or what's best for families and so on. And I say, you know, I'm, I have to accept that. But I, I, I always put it as a challenge. I wanted I said my belief was that of, let's say, 10 students in a cohort, my guess was that maybe only only three of them, three years out, would be still practicing the way that they were actually taught. So I threw it out there as a challenge. I want them to think like, no, I want to be one of those three that's doing it right. I don't want to be one of those seven who've just given in and gone to the dark side and don't give a crap anymore. Okay, that, that, crap is a good word. That's not a real bad one, all right? So that's what I, I want. I want them to be advocates. I really want them to feel like every day they're fighting this battle for equity, for, for social justice. And if, if they're not, they know they're not. But, I mean, I'm not going to go find them and berate them, except now through a podcast, hoping to make them feel really guilty. But um, that, that's what I was hoping for, the advocacy. You know, it's, it's interesting you said that because you mentioned the word child advocate in your description just now. And there's something you told me was what, 20 something years ago yeah. that I still remember. And we were having a discussion in one of the classrooms and you said, think about students. And I don't know if you remember this. You said, think about students. Students are affected, are affected negatively every day. And I never even thought about that. But I start, the more I watch the news, the more I watch all these situations, the more I see in schools. To this day, when I walk into a school setting or when I, when I was practicing as a school psychologist and even as a principal, there you know this probably as well being a principal, you think about things like that because it resonates even way back then. It's the students first and having that whole perspective on, we have to ensure our students who come to school are prepared with the skills they need to be successful. And that that word advocacy kind of stands out from that. So I thank you for that. Cause like I said, I never forgot it. I, I to this day, I still think of that. So thank you. You're welcome. I, I, I'll give you a quick story. We're not videoing, but if we were, I, I think I wore the exact right tie because see, I'm gonna look here so you can see it. And this this that's Bugs Bunny right there, and he's playing the piano. You can see, right? Mm -hmm. So that, that that's literally my tie. Okay, so like from this angle, you think, oh, it's just a normal kind of tie, right? So you wouldn't even see that. But this this tie was given to me by one of my supervisors. Uh, her name was uh, Ruth Johnson, Dr. Ruth Johnson, who was my first supervisor, my internship supervisor, when I was uh, learning school psychology at uh, Capri Elementary in, in Encinitas. And she went on vacation uh, to Korea. And when she came back from Korea, this was a gift that, that she brought me. And at the time, 
I was, you know, like you can see now here, Mr. Button Down Collar and, you know, nice jacket. And I had the rep ties or the foulard ties, you know, just looking all good. Right. And uh, one day I, I, I remember after she gave it to me, I thought I need to show my appreciation. So i got to wear the tie. Right. She's got to see me wearing it. Otherwise, you know, you're not being thankful. So so one day going to, to school, I, I wore it. And that day I noticed suddenly that the kids in the school who'd seen me, I'd been there a long time. It's not like I was brand new. They suddenly started noticing my tie and they were commenting, oh, look, he's got Bugs Bunny. Oh, let me see Bugs Bunny. You know, and they were like suddenly interested in my tie. And I thought that's an unusual reaction because they never cared or gave a, you know what, about my tie before. So I, I'm like, wow, that was kind of interesting. And I thought, okay, wait, I want to do an experiment here. Cause I thought, no, that was like just a fluke. It was just they were interested that day. So I I went to like a dime store and bought another cartoon tie. I don't remember what it was. But one day again, the following week, I wore it to see if I'd get the same reaction. And I did. And I'm like, oh, my God, the kids are actually noticing what I'm wearing. And when I wear normal adult stuff, they don't care. They don't give a crap. Right. But when I wear this, they're like, oh, my God, look at that. And it was it was so telling to me that they noticed something that I wouldn't even think they would notice. And I from that point on, and this was ooh, what 1996, so almost 30 years ago. So since that point, I have never bought or received a normal tie again. <laughs> I own probably in my closet here 75 different ties, and every single one of them is a cartoon character or some kind of children's tie, save the children, child-oriented tie. And I wore them consistently and daily as a reminder of my own advocacy for children, that I'm showing up to the school. I'm not there to impress the principal or the parents. I'm there for the kids. And so my tie has always been that way. You will not find a picture of me, at least not dating back before 1996 or so, of me in a normal tie. Every tie I have, even if you can't tell, is a secret or an absolute, you know, explicit kid tie with a cartoon or something on it like that is child reference. So that's the way I remind myself. That's what I do, the, the things that I do. Sam, I, 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 I got to ask, have you ever considered writing this up as a, a randomized control trial of uh, the effect of <laughs> cartoon ties on student engagement i don't know just an idea you'll have to run with it you know i, I have um i've seen some some journal articles writing up some pretty absurd kinds of things and i'm thinking i could probably do that so i'm actually kind of curious too on this note like and this is obviously uh, a while ago in your career but like in that moment, did you notice relationships with students on your campus change beyond just the initial like noticing and like engaging with you um, in your role as a school psychologist? How did that impact the relationships you were developing with with kids? Yeah, it it um, it again made me aware that they were aware. So that was a big revelation on my part because I, I didn't think they even thought about it. Um, but number two, because they saw that, it also was a little disarming for them. So I wasn't just another guy that looked like the principal or somebody else. Even though I did wear a tie all the time, I, I, they, they always had something to relate to that got them past 
that kind of professional demeanor. And it was especially helpful. And I know um, this will sound strange, but maybe not too strange, especially helpful because I worked in the elementary schools primarily, which is what I love um, with the, the girls in the upper elementary grades, because by that age, you know, they were kind of wary of men as they should be. And I looked like, you know, Hispanic male, brown skin with a mustache. I looked like the kind of guy their mothers were telling them to avoid. So it was like having a little, you know, tie with a cartoon on. It was a good way of letting them know, hey, everything's cool here. I'm, I'm all right. So, you know, it, it really made it easier in that way. And, and it always, I think, gave me an in with the students that I didn't have before. And it was sort of an instant, like, yeah, okay, if he can wear a Bugs Bunny tie here, then he's all right with me. I'm kind of curious. Well, I, oh, do you want to go? Go ahead. No, no, go, go ahead. Go ahead, Mary. Well, I was just going to say, I'm curious in all of your years of research and as a professor, um, and I know you said you tell your students to to be advocates and to to not forget they're there for students, but how have you seen, or maybe not how have you seen, but we know that research supports the importance of adult and student relationships on campus and the impact that that can have on a student feeling connected to school, successful in school academically, so on and so forth. Um, how has the the impact, or how have you seen that impact of student teacher of like psychologist student relationships? change over time in the field? Have you seen those changes in those shifts? Or um, have you seen yourself the impact of one of your students kind of going through that discovery themselves at all? Um, I, I have actually. Um, the most common example tends to be uh, students that are not necessarily bilingual and uh, but they still get trained by me, so they learn non-discriminatory assessment. Um, it's difficult sometimes for them to relate to it because they don't have the personal perspective, even if they understand it, they adopt it, and they do well. So then they go off and be school psychologists, and they're doing fine. Everything is kind of going normal, and then they get a kid who's now an English learner, and they didn't expect it or they weren't thinking about it. And then suddenly, you know, there's this panic, like, oh, my God, what do I do? Wait a minute. I got to go back and do what Dr. Ortiz was telling me I needed to do. And then they review all of that material. And suddenly it becomes so immediately and professionally relevant to them that they internalize it. And it's like, oh, my God. And then I get an email. And this, is, again, happens all, you know, sporadically. But I'll get an email saying, Hi, uh, Dr. Ortiz, you know, I'm not sure you remember me, but I was in your class and went, da, 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 I just want to let you know, I started working with this kid and da, 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 and it's the first time I had to do this. And wow, I remember what you were teaching us in class, but I hadn't really held on to it. And now I had to apply it here. And it's become so much more meaningful that I wanted to thank you for what you had done. So I, I do get some of that feedback sometimes. And it's nice to hear. I, I know that it opens their eyes finally, and they see it. Uh, in action, and then it becomes powerful. You know, the classroom's a bit abstract, and not me personally not being in the schools anymore, I, I don't see that day-to-day -day interaction. Um, but with certain people um, and certain former students and certain colleagues, when I go with them to the schools or I observe them in the schools, you know, you can always tell who has a good relationship with the students and who has a more marginal one. 
So I, I, I'm hoping that those emails come, you know, back to me. And when they do that, okay, there was one that I know I, I got through to. And so I'm happy about mm-hmm. that. So I, I, I live on tiny successes. So. Well, I think too, just to connect back to a little bit of, of what you're, you're talking about, not only your non-discriminatory assessments, but you talked a little bit earlier about the pre-referral process and how there's still so much that we need to do and getting those emails from past students is so great. But I also know the impact that you're having still on our community, um, even though you're off on the other side of the continent, um, country, uh, the impact you're still having on students here. And we, we've we been grateful to have you speak with our um, project last year. And we have you coming back this year to do two days of training for folks, not only on non-discriminatory assessments, but also on that pre-referral process. Um, and so I think we would maybe love to hear a little bit about what folks could expect in those upcoming upcoming trainings for you, what they have to look forward to. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. I, I really enjoy doing the pre-referral talks because I do get to tell a bit more of my stories. So there's a lot of personal interaction there because I'm, I'm trying to really help the audience understand what is it really like to grow up with two languages and a different culture? You know, if you're not someone who comes from that type of background, it's difficult to step outside of your own, you know, ethnocentric perspective and see what other people might be experiencing. So I use myself as an example throughout the whole talk. And I have a lot of uh, really good stories that, that kind of highlight that um, in explaining the bilingual bicultural experience, as I call it. So it, it, it really is, I think, an eye opener more than anything. And it relates Um, I would say to the same principle that we talk about in evaluation, which is the difference in development that occurs. You know, when, when, when we use a test, like in a standardized, uh, well, a standardized test for the purposes of like disability identification or diagnostic purposes, we are using a test that primarily uses age to control for cognitive maturation, language development, and so on. Now, I've already explained that with language, you can get off kilter. I might be 10 years old, but it doesn't mean I've had 10 years worth of language learning in English. I might have only had five or four or one day. And so that alters the performance that you can reasonably expect from me on that test, even if I'm 10 years old, right? Now, the same thing applies in the peripheral process. When we are are trying to teach children, we're expecting their language to be able to continue from birth. A five-year-old who comes to kindergarten isn't taught to speak. They already are expected to know how to speak and to speak pretty darn well. They can communicate quite well with the teacher at that point such that instruction can begin. If you're an English learner who's never spoken English, what kind of instruction can you actually receive if you don't even understand what the teacher is telling you? So I kind of go through that and I show people how language continues to affect the development through the kinds of educational processes we're applying at each and every grade level, all right? You know, we don't tie it to age per se, but it's pretty closely aligned with age, but it's mostly grade level, kindergarten, then first grade, then second grade. What are you supposed to know by then? How much development are you supposed to have by then? And we do the same thing. We look at your reading ability and we say, oh, your reading is low. Well, you're in third grade. You should be reading like a third grader, but you're not. Must be something wrong with you. But 
if I've only been learning English a couple of years, how well do you really expect me to be able to read in English? And that's where we get into trouble. It's really the comparison standards that we use. And whether we're using RTI, MTSS, and we're employing curriculum-based assessment or some kind of probe or screener or any kind of measurement of academic rates of growth or academic growth overall, it is the standard for comparison that can be discriminatory. Because if you compare a student who is not a monolingual native English speaker, age appropriate uh, level in terms of language development and so forth to an English learner, they're always going to come out best. And English learners are always going to come out poor and they're always going to look like they're behind. And they're always then going to be identified as having a problem when in fact it's a circumstantial issue. So I try to get that point across in development, both by showing how it works sort of, you know, from a scientific, psychological, developmental perspective, but also from a personal one where I'll tell you stories of what it was like to grow up as a kid because, you know, it's as simple as I'm growing up in a Puerto Rican home. I go home to eat dinner and I get arroz y habichuelas day in and day out. That's what I'm getting as a Puerto Rican kid, you know, and I'm wondering why can't we have hamburgers and hot dogs for dinner, mom and dad, you know, and they're like, what? No, we don't need to have. What are you talking about? It's like it, it, it was tough because I was learning such different things than everybody else was learning. Well, not everybody else, but mainstream monolingual English speakers raised in the cultural milieu were learning. And so when I went to school, I didn't have that knowledge. And where was I going to get it? You know, I wasn't going to, I either got it on my own. Google didn't exist at the time. Thank you very much, Google, for doing me no favors like that. But nevertheless, I, I, I had to pick it up incidentally along the way. And when you pick up those things, they don't come at the age appropriate levels. They come much, much later. You know, and if you stop and think of things like humor or idioms, I mean, I asked my mom one time, I say, hey, mom, what does a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush mean? And my mom, you know, bless her heart, speaking Spanish to me. She's like, oh, mija, you know, we got one bird aquí, tiene la mano. You got it in the hand, okay? And there's another bird over there, un pájaro in the bush over there. You see him, right? Okay. Now the bird in the bush, he flies away, right? And I'm like, okay. And then now you got the one in your hand. And I'm like, that doesn't make any sense at all, ma. I don't know what that means. So it's like I had to figure these things out. And I did. I mean, but. Again, not at the time when people expected me. That's part of the reason I consider myself as being naive. And I say that proudly. I, I just really didn't know. There was too much learning to cram in into a shorter period of time. It just wasn't going to happen. But that's the way that it was. Well, I know I'm excited. And a lot of folks have uh, really been excited about these upcoming trainings and and I we we were excited to kind of tell you what to expect. So I think we want to drop a few numbers for you. You ready for this? Sure. Go ahead. <laughs> this is how excited folks are in California um, to to be able to come to both of your trainings on day one, which I believe is our uh square pegs. Yes, the pre-referral. The pre-referral processes where, yep. Um, And let's see, that one has over 247 registrants right now online and then about 30 in person. And um, best practices and evaluation, which is going to look at the non-discriminatory assessment, has about 
over 200 online and about 20 in person. So it's wow. definitely a need. And I think that what excites me about being able to, to have you is not only, you know, in Southern San Diego, where we are, obviously we do support a lot of second language learners and in um, Southern California, I think in general, whether it is Spanish speaking or, I mean, we have um, students moving from all over the world to different neighborhoods and San Diego alone, we have I mean, some school districts have so many different languages that students speak. So I know everyone is just really um, just excited, especially to hear about this pre-referral process and and listening to you. I know as a former school principal, those are conversations that we have with teachers and parents and staff on a regular basis and being able to... uh, take some of the research and knowledge I know you have back with me to have those conversations in um, meaningful ways that that are going to be student-centered, right? And uh, help us make more um, uh, meaningful decisions in what's in the best interest of students, giving them that, that chance, right? To develop and grow their language before we just get into an assessment to slap a label to try to fix something. I, I think that that people are really excited and are just going to, um, I don't know what other word to say, for some reason in my mind right now, eat that up now that we're talking about like <laughs> idioms and figures of speech. But like, like, I think people are just so excited to talk about that. And I think it's just a huge need right now um, within our systems. I mean, MTSS growing, students needing interventions and supports and trying to make the best decisions we can with students. This is exactly what, what people need. So we're really excited to have you and can't, can't wait to, to learn from you. I even think too, just like there's a broader lesson here, you know, because we've, we've met with so many school districts at this point, um, trying to help them with their, um, equity related projects. And, um, a lot of these school districts are identified for, um, some unequal outcomes in special education, you know, otherwise known as disproportionality for those, you know, for those of us who are familiar with that term. Um, and we often, we have been recommending your training sessions a lot, um, even if we're not talking about if the area where they are experiencing some inequality in outcomes isn't necessarily with with English learners. And I think the reason why we've been doing that is we just intuitively know that it your work, Sam, introduces like a broader idea, which is we can think of assessments critically, maybe not give so much, um, uh, maybe not rely so much on the way tests are, um, are given and the results they produced in a vacuum, like without any surrounding context. And though your work primarily focuses and goes really deep on what that experience is like for English learners, that's really an idea that makes a ton of sense for all kids, I think. Um, the execution of that idea looks different, of course. Um, but you know, we, we often say, uh, though disproportionality is a really complex things, you know, we, it does happen in very specific moments in the process. For example, when a referral goes, is made from SST or when everybody at the IEP meeting decides to sign, those are moments literally when it happens. And so, you know, can we like, how do we, surround those moments with the right kinds of questions 
um, that are in the kind of the same family of questions that I think your story asks and you, and you know, the way that you, uh, you look at assessment asks. Um, and so I really think, I really think it's great. And I hope that folks who come, um, will, will come even if they are, you know, maybe they don't have a population of a lot of English learners. I still think there's a ton to learn here and be, and, and be in community with people who are just asking questions about the way we make decisions with assessment data. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I don't know that I teach my students anything different other than to be really responsible and uh, knowledgeable and I would say expert at being able to interpret data rather than merely, you know, looking at the score and saying, well, this is what that score means. You know, it, it's, it's really poor. There, there's so much to being able to understand and assign meaning to any given measurement, whether it's a standard score here or whether it's a, you know, uh, words read correctly per minute over here. It's the context, like you said, Ryan, without that context, you cannot interpret a score in a vacuum. And so you have to use that to give it meaning. And I, I think we fall short that way. And I, I've, I, have, I have developed my own English idiom. Thank you very much. Um, I have because I didn't have any other way of, of describing it. So I've had to describe it this way. And the idiom is that I, I generally put it to people as simply as I can. And it comes out as when you're trying to determine whether any particular measurement might be indicative of a potential intrinsic problem, as opposed to a circumstantial problem or instructional problem or something outside the child, then you have to basically I'd say make the determination that the level of the performance is what I call below and beyond what can be attributed, attributed to these extrinsic uh, circumstantial developmental issues alone. And so it's only when it falls, you know, again, below and beyond that. I had to use below and beyond because we don't use, you know, we don't use high scores for diagnostic decision unless you're doing things like pathology, psychopathology, emotional behavior, but for cognitive, it's generally going to be below and beyond. So I, that's my new idiom. You're welcome to use it and popularize it. But anyway, so, you know, I, I, that's a decision. I can look at the, a child's, you know, performance on anything, and then I know what they've gone through. And I'll say, well, if I had a child who went through all of that, what would I expect them to be able to do on this particular task? How well should they be able to perform? You know, how quickly or whatever, at what level. And so if what I know about that child says, you know what, they're actually doing pretty well, given what we know about the child, then you can't really say that's evidence of a disability. It's only when you think that, you know, even with this considered, even with this allowed and permitted, including what we talked about at the beginning, right, Marcus, the uh, pandemic, the effect of the pandemic, you have to take that into account. And you say, if I had gone through that, then how well could I do the task that is set before me now? And if I can do it about as well as I'm doing it, you don't have a problem, likely. But if it's like, no, you know, even that doesn't account for the performance, then maybe there is something else that is there uh, that is affecting the child in addition to what we see. So that's kind of how I try to put it as simple as possible. Uh, not that it's an easy decision, but that's what we have to determine. And I think too often people just dismiss those circumstantial factors. They just don't care or they don't understand. But either way, they don't get their due.
Okay. Hey, Dr. Ortiz, uh, uh, this has been a fun and always informative discussion with you. So we appreciate you being here. Uh, before we go, I want to make sure, are there any other projects you want us to, um, you want to promote before we leave? Uh, I, I mean, I've got all kinds of things going on. I, I probably mentioned the, what, what I was going to call the ELIM, but it's now the climate last time. So I'm still haven't finished the climate, but I'm getting there. Um, We'll probably have another version of XBAS coming out soon. Um, still trying to get it online as well. So if you go on Amazon and you see something that's called um, XBAS 3.0, there is no such thing. So don't don't buy it. Doesn't exist. Um, and uh, like I said, just uh, some writing and chapters, you know. But the usual stuff. I don't know. I. I I don't know that there's anything super exciting, like I said, other than the NAS best practices chapter, which will form kind of the framework for the presentations. The, the first two elements of the best practice framework, there are now only four elements, one, two, three, four. The first two are pre-referral. The second two are, you know, post-referral. So I'll be using them literally as the framework for the presentations for the two days coming up and people will see how they go together. You know, the, the reality is, assessment doesn't actually start after a kid is referred it's already begun the moment the child has entered school and you have to be gathering data all along the way before you then say okay let's do something else and gather additional data because the question shifts pre-referral is not about diagnosis pre-referral is about what do we need to do to help the child learn better what kind of instructional modification what kind of interventions are necessary how do we help this child learn better that's why you're gathering the data in service of that question. If you want to know the question or the answer to the question, why does a child have a disability, then that's evaluation, that's assessment, that's post-referral, that's under IDEA. So that's a whole different question. That means the data you gather for that purpose is addressing a different question. And very often, people don't know how to integrate the two, and that can be real dangerous. So hopefully the two days coming up will help people understand it nice and clear, I will use my own English, and uh, I promise I won't throw out any more English idioms that I developed, because they probably don't make much sense anyway, except to me, um, but I'm looking forward to coming out. It's going to be fun. It's going to be a blast. I always enjoy my time in San Diego. You know that. My family's from there. I grew up in San Diego, so it's always a homecoming for me, and I, I can't wait to get back. I really can't. Good. We're looking forward to you. We have a tradition that goes way back to when you were doing the the PSW training. So uh, think about some fun places that we can go to discuss after your training. So we'll, we'll work on that. Uh, right. So thank, thank you, Dr. Ortiz. Once again, everyone, those trainings with Dr. Ortiz are coming up. They'll be September 13th and September 14th. So you can, be in, you can do it in person or you can do it online. Feel free to come to San Diego. It's a beautiful place to come visit. But Dr. Ortiz, thank you again. We appreciate you being here. You're coming home because your family's here. But with us, we also feel like you're coming home. So thank you. We appreciate your time and what you do. So thank you. You're very welcome. And thank you all. It's a pleasure for me. So I'm happy to do it anytime. Thank you. We want to acknowledge the California Department of Education and the California Collaborative for Educational Excellence for awarding the SOPA Content Lead Grants. The ED&D podcast is funded through the Content Lead Grant and enables our team to share the critical work of educators with a broad audience across the state. Thank you to our listeners for sharing this conversation with us. 
Join us at our next ED&D episode as we continue the journey of interviewing professionals who possess a passion for building equitable educational services for all students.